I'm sure maybe at some point you have engaged in a test or in an experiment or even a game of word association, and you know how that works, that you are given a word and you have to give straight away the words that you associate with that word, the words that immediately spring to mind. So a game or a test of word association tonight, although I'm not asking you to shout out aloud, maybe that wouldn't be a good thing, but what comes to your mind when you hear the word elder? Perhaps it conjures up a mental image of gray-haired men in dark suits who are austere and who are put in that position in order to make sure that everything remains exactly the same. I think of that old joke, how many Presbyterian elders does it take to change a light bulb? Change, change. There'll be no change while I'm an elder in this church. Maybe we can afford a little joke at the beginning of our time looking at God's Word tonight, but we need to say that the role of an elder is no laughing matter. So, what is your view of the elders of this church and the role that they fulfill? Indeed, if you are an elder, whether you are an elder serving here in this congregation of Connor, or you are a teaching or a ruling elder elsewhere, how do you regard the task that you fulfill in this church? Well, these are vitally important questions, and of course, we need to turn to Scripture in order to find the correct answers. So, I encourage you to turn with me again in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And tonight, as we do that for a while, let's consider the context of this passage. Remember that this is a letter that Paul wrote late in his life and his ministry to his friend and fellow Christian leader, Timothy, who was pastoring a church in a place called Ephesus. And we can say of this letter that it is both personal and prophetic. It's personal in that it is Paul writing to his closest and most trusted friend in ministry. And so, perhaps more than anywhere else in Scripture, we here get to see the mind of Paul because that's how it is with our closest friends. When we communicate with them, whether it's by message or by talking to them in person, we open up to them about our deepest feelings. But we also say of this letter that it is prophetic. We think of how Paul introduces himself right at the beginning of the letter when he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. In other words, he is Christ's messenger. And the words that we read here are God-breathed. We believe, we trust that this is God's Word to us. And then the more specific context, and here we turn back to chapter 2, the chapter that we've spent the last two Sunday evenings 
considering, where Paul gives instructions to Timothy about worship, and those instructions are so important because there is nothing more important than worship. It is the ultimate activity for us to engage in. It's why we are here, not only here tonight, but it's why we are here in that existential sense. And last week, we considered chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. We thought about Paul's teaching on the respective roles of men and women in worship. And we remember tonight that all that he taught on that matter was underpinned by what he tells us in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2. Perhaps you might want to scan down through those verses again, for they are foundational verses that concern creation and the fall. So, last time we considered what Genesis tells us about men and women, what it is that we learn in the Scriptures about men and women. And perhaps we can summarize it like this, that God made men and women equal and distinctive, equal in value and dignity, and we must remember that, and distinctive in certain responsibilities and roles. And so, we considered God's perfect design for men and women, including the leadership role given to men within the family and within God's family, the church. And you might remember that Paul points out in verse 14, how the fall, how our descent into sin distorted God's good plan with Eve seeking to exercise authority over Adam and teach him with disastrous consequences. But remember that the chapter and our time together last week finished positively with the reminder of how the work of the gospel restores the order of creation. Because we had our thoughts at the end last Sunday night directed to Jesus, to Christ, the offspring of Eve who would crush the serpent's head and save God's people. Now, the reason why I've taken a few moments tonight to review those principles that underpin the instructions that Paul gives in chapter 2 is because these principles also have a bearing on what we read or what we read and will consider tonight in chapter 3. Let's remember that the Scriptures were not written with chapter and verse numbers. They were added much later as a way of helping us in our private and corporate study of God's Word, and we are glad for that. But we remember tonight, and we should have a sense of this being a whole book. This is a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And while we can only consider it in manageable chunks, just a few verses at a time, we should see the flow of what Paul is saying to Timothy. So, with all of that in mind, here in chapter 3, in verses 1 to 7, Paul turns his attention to how the church is led. 
And if the importance of chapter 2 lies in the importance of worship, the fact that it is our ultimate purpose, or as the shorter catechism tells us, our chief end, then the importance of chapter 3 lies in the importance of the church, just how special the church is to the Lord. After all, He gave His Son for it. And clearly, it matters to the Lord how His Son's church should be guided and cared for here on earth. And so, understanding all of this, Paul begins his teaching on leadership with a big statement. Look at verse 1. And there he reminds us how important and special a task being an elder is. How he describes it is as being a noble task. And that's a verse that is prefaced with that familiar expression of Paul, one that we have already encountered in this book and see elsewhere in the New Testament when Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying. Whenever Paul uses that phrase, it's as if he is putting the next part of what he says in bold. It's as if Paul is saying, listen really carefully, because what I'm about to tell you is very important. Now, those who have been in leadership within the church during its history have not always been noble, but we must never confuse their feelings with the nobility of the role. Paul says the task is noble. And I reckon that straight away that presents us with a huge challenge. It is an enormous corrective to us. Let me ask you that question again that I asked at the beginning of the sermon, this time in the light of what we have already heard from Paul in verse 1. Now, how do you regard the elders and the role that they have in this church? Because Paul is instructing us to take a high view of their position. And that very much challenges the spirit of the age that we live in, a time when people largely reject any kind of authority and they seek to give themselves over to self-determination. And tonight I would have to say that in every church that I've ministered in, I have heard either directly or indirectly, because inevitably these things come back, I have heard people engage in really harsh and disrespectful criticism of the elders of the church, including here in Connor. Now, thankfully, by the nature of such people, usually they begin to drift away, sometimes eventually moving on, although sometimes that influence can persist. Tonight, I would hate to think that anyone present here in this gathering would engage in harsh and unwarranted criticism of our elders, but maybe you will hear others doing that. It might be at the shop or while you're out for a walk, 
or even during tea and coffee afterwards. And in the light of Paul's statement here, will you call that out? Will you challenge people who criticize the elders of this church in that way? And of course, this statement is also a massive challenge to our elders and to those who are elders here tonight. For Paul and Scripture is telling you that you are engaged in a noble task. Yours is a high calling. So there is absolutely no room for laziness, complacency, lethargy, indifference, spiritual carelessness, for the task is noble. And the men doing it must match its nobility. So how we need God's grace. Men who are elders here this evening, how we need the power of God's Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And given the nobility of this task, Paul then sets out to Timothy the requirements for being an overseer within Christ's church. And here they are, first of all, in his own life, an elder, an overseer, must be self-controlled. We also are given in Scripture what we could describe as a job description for the elder, and it's led out by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. You could consider that later on, and we have considered that passage in the lead-up to an, elder, an election of elders here. And what we need to recognize if we were to look at those two passages in parallel is that the job description and the qualifications for an overseer, the qualities that are required are very closely linked. So one of the roles that Peter talks about when he describes the functions of an elder is that an elder is to be an example to others. And of course, that's only possible if your life is conducted in a certain way. So back here in this passage, Paul says in verse 2 of the elder, the overseer, that he is to be temperate, he is to be self-controlled, he is to be respectable. And then in verse 3, that he is not to be given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. Now, probably the instruction there that especially stands out to us is that an elder would not be given to drunkenness. And we would find that truly shocking if one of our elders was seen in public having lost control due to drink staggering down the main street and corner. But it's important to see that alongside this, there is also the emphasis on the elder keeping his, his head, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome. And these are the sins that are much more readily excused within our churches and much more readily written off by us in our own lives. That's just who I am. That's just the way that I get on at times, with no sense of God's Holy Spirit changing us 
to become more and more like Jesus. So what is clear is that how an elder conducts his personal life is of vital importance. And this involves having self-control, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So there is this clear need for God's Holy Spirit to be established in an elder's life. Because only with these qualities can an elder then fulfill the job description and provide a good example to other believers. Now, elders here tonight, does what you are hearing, what you are seeing written in God's Word challenge you as to how you behave within the home, within your workplace, within this church setting? It certainly challenges me and rebukes me. But remember that this is not how elders alone are to order their life. They are to be the good example, if you like, the, the par excellence that other believers should then follow. And so these verses surely provide a challenge to us all. But then second, in his relationship with his family, an elder is to be capable of discipline and is to provide a godly example. We think of that word that is used by Paul in verse 1, the word overseer, this idea of a role that, of exercising leadership and authority over others. And again, if we think to Peter and what he tells us about the eldership, another of the, the tasks of the elder is to be a guide who gives direction, to be a shepherd of the flock. And that is only possible in the life of a church family if this is being exercised within the family unit. So look again at what Paul tells Timothy in verses 4 and 5 of the overseer. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. And then he adds in, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? And you can see the, the progression there, the logic there in that statement. That the two roles of headship within the household and then headship within God's household within the church are very closely related. And you'll see here that Paul uses masculine pronouns. He is talking about he and him throughout this passage. And the assumption here is that elders are men. Well, is that an assumption that is confined to the culture of Paul's day? Well, this is where we come back to chapter 2 and to those foundational verses in verses 13 and 14, those foundational principles which underpin Paul's teaching. And we're reminded of that biblical principle that men and women are created equal but different, having complementary roles, which include the man exercising this headship. And this begins with being part of a stable family unit, 
as Paul says in verse 2, being the husband of but one wife. We think of a parallel passage where Paul writes to Titus, and he says of the elder in Titus 1 verse 6 that he is to be a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. That how a man manages his own family will point to his suitability to oversee spiritual matters within the church of Jesus Christ. And some people might regard that as being unfair. How can any man be held accountable for the actions of his children, not least their belief or their unbelief? Because God needs to work in grace by the power of His Holy Spirit in their lives, and that is absolutely true. But the question is, has a man done all within his power to lead his young people in the ways of the Lord, whether they choose to follow in those ways or not? For it's an important indicator about the leadership that he will be capable of giving in the church of Jesus Christ. But then third, an elder in his relationship with others must have a good reputation. Paul says in verse 2 that the overseer must be above reproach and hospitable. Then in verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. And you can be absolutely sure of this, that an elder will not only be judged from within the church, but that the life of an overseer will be watched and closely scrutinized on the outside. That indeed there will be people who are watching and waiting for and trying to make us trip up. And then it's a case of, well, look what, what he's done. Look, look at what he said. And he's meant to be an elder too. Well, if that's the bunch leading that church, well, if that's your Christians for you and all the rest of it. And let's be absolutely sure of who lies behind efforts to trip up, to discredit, and to criticize because Paul is absolutely clear in verse 7. He describes it as the devil's trap. Elder, overseer in this church, yours is a noble task. And with the position comes a greater responsibility to ensure that your conduct is above reproach. But please remember, this way of living, once again, is not exclusive to elders. Rather, they are to set the good example. They are to raise the bar, the example for the rest of us to follow. And believer in Christ, this is how you ought to live, particularly in the context of these verses, men in your homes with your families. But then fourth and finally, in his relationship with Christ, an elder must be a mature believer. This is our last point, 
but it is certainly not the least. Although you might be surprised that there isn't actually more made by Paul here about the faith that an elder has in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is simply because it was absolutely assumed by Paul, correctly assumed, that people who were chosen to be elders were people who had faith in the Lord Jesus. So that Paul clearly does not see a great need to spell all of that out in detail. In the church of the first believers in Jesus Christ, it would have been absolutely unimaginable that a non-believer, someone who was not a saved man, would be an elder. It was understood that those who are elders will have a great desire to share in the work of the Lord because they have a relationship with the Lord. Sadly, today, in some churches, that assumption can no longer be made. And so, it needs to be absolutely and clearly stated that it is obvious and essential that an elder within the church of Jesus Christ will be someone who has trusted in Jesus and who knows Him as Savior and Lord. And to that, Paul adds in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Again, the assumption is that the person will be a convert, not just a recent one. They will be someone who has been changed by the Spirit of the living God, who has repented, who has turned away from sin and self and look to the cross of Christ. And the reason why an overseer should be more mature, mature in faith is not that younger believers are lacking in zeal. Often, they're the very opposite, but because they need building up before they are in a position to build others up. And while a ruling elder is not necessarily ordained to teach and to preach the Word of God, there is a need for ruling elders to understand the Scriptures in a deep way, to know the key doctrines of Scripture. Again, we think of what Paul says to Titus in Titus 1 verse 9 of the elder, that he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Elders may not be experts in theology, but they are to be men of the Word, shaped by the Word in their own lives, committed to defending the truth of the gospel, committed to sharing the gospel with others and doing that in a confident way. And so tonight, as we hear these things said of the overseer by Paul in Scripture, for elders here tonight, we are compelled to seek the grace of God. For who of us is up to this task? Which of our lives look exactly like this? And it is a grace 
that every single one of us present here tonight should seek from God in Christ? We think of the words of Paul in the farewell speech that he gave to the elders of this church in Ephesus. In Acts chapter 20, he left them with these incredible words of encouragement. He says, now I commit you to God and to the word of His grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And may we, in our lives and in this church, seek the grace of God in the light of what we have heard from His Word this evening. So, let's pray together now and seek that grace. Eternal God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank You for what we have heard from Your Word this evening, and we are filled with confidence as we turn to Your Word. Lord, we come humbly before You. For those who are elders this evening, may the fact that we have been called to what is a noble task in no way fill us with pride, but bring us to You with great humility, seeking Your help and Your grace and the power of Your Holy Spirit. And Lord, tonight we would pray for the elders of this congregation, that You would grant them wisdom and grace for the incredible task that they've been called to, that they would set us a right example, and that they would be at the forefront of raising the spiritual temperature in this place. And we pray for elders in surrounding congregations, and elders in congregations that we have close links with. Tonight we pray for Rogerio, and His people in the church in Singe in Portugal. And we thank You for Jose Mar, one of the newer elders there, and the teaching role that he is fulfilling alongside Rogerio. Give these men of God great confidence in Your Word and the strength that they need, and all for the sake of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.